Well, let's pray before uh, we dive in this morning. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, the, the promise of hope as video reminded us on a hill called Calvary, a hill you made, but a son who died on it, not made, who was there in the beginning with you creating all things, even us. And uh, we worship you this morning as our maker, as our creator, and as our redeemer. Now the one who is and who was and is to come, King of kings, Lord of lords. And as we continue these weeks to talk about the um, evidences that um, point us to you and away from simply a naturalistic explanation of the world, I pray that um, we would have on our hearts um, people that we know that don't know Christ and maybe think that this world is, can't possibly be explained by a supernatural creator, that we would have on our hearts our children and the need to teach them uh, because certainly they're going to grow up and enter a hostile world um, to what we believe and what we pray that they will believe. And so we want to teach them well, that we have on our hearts our brothers and sisters who go through times of doubt in their own lives so that we could be ready to help them as well. And uh, have in mind these weeks our own weaknesses and recognition that it could be us in six months or six years struggling with some major doubts. We go through seasons of life that... Um, ruffle our feathers and un, unbalance our stability where we need the help of others to remind us of, of your presence and your goodness and your great work of grace. I pray that you'd speak to us this morning. I pray that um, we would enlarge in our view of you, our understanding of you. And we pray against the enemy who wants to speak to us and pray that you would silence him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing our series that we started last Sunday on apologetics and uh, titled Within Reason. And the title of today's message is, Is There Evidence for God? Uh, I, I did some last minute changes yesterday and this is actually gonna be a, next week's gonna be a part two. Uh, the series just got longer. Um, what was going to be a single sermon today is now going to be two sermons. Uh, next week will be, Is There Evidence for God? Part two. And the following week, part three, Is There Evidence for God? And when I ask that question, I'm talking about uh, not evidence that we find in here um, and, and not evidence we find in things like miracles. If you're talking with someone who has a lot of doubts and uncertainties and questions about even the very existence of God, they're probably not ready to agree that this has authority in their life. And so to quote scripture after scripture for them is not going to be convincing um, evidence for God. And the same with, with miracles. Um, I shared with you, uh, I was supernaturally healed about a year and a half ago uh, in Coles in an instant. And I won't tell you where in Coles because I don't want you to build a shrine and go there. Never experienced anything like that in my life. Haven't since, um, in an instant, went from here physically to here. 
Now, if I would tell somebody who's a skeptic about that experience, in their minds, there could be five different ways to interpret that. Um, he, he only thought he had a uh, physical infirmity, or he only thought that he was healed, or he had some sort of emotional experience. I don't know really know what it was, but it, it, it's, it wasn't that God somehow fixed him. And so the, when we take our supernatural understanding of the world to people who don't have a supernatural grid, it's not compelling to them. And so what we're talking about during these weeks are some ways that we can introduce people who are skeptical about the supernatural, some things that they do acknowledge, uh, uh, a different way to interpret what they see, what they experience, what they uh, already acknowledge. And so when I say, is there evidence for God, we're looking into areas that they might agree are worthwhile looking at and trying to give them a different way of interpreting it. Back in 1961, a cosmonaut from Russia by the name of Yuri uh, Gagarin was the first man in space, made a one uh, revolution orbit in the space and came back. And he was reported to have said when he returned, when he was up in space, I looked and I looked and I looked, but I didn't see God. Now, it's interesting, of course, uh, he, he was saying that as a, a communist and a, a part of communism's tenets is that there is no God. Uh, when Stalin came to power in the USSR, he closed churches, he imprisoned pastors, and for decades, you were not allowed to name the name of God or Christ. What was interesting is that Yuri was actually a member of the Orthodox Russian church. And Yuri's best friend and fellow cosmonaut claims that, that that's not actually what happened. What happened was the premier Nikita Khrushchev pulled Yuri aside at a dinner banquet sometime later and said, when you were in space, did you see God? And Yuri said, yes. And Nikita told him, don't tell anybody. Now what's interesting is communism since then, of course, has is crumbled under the weight of its own flawed um, philosophies. There are five countries left in the, in the world that are communist. Uh, places like North Korea and uh, Vietnam and Laos. And what's interesting is they're either those that are uh, kind of gaining f their, their feet uh, under them economically and socially are the ones that are, are moving out further and further away from communism. And especially you look at a place like China and, and China is still trying to squash the church and yet they are absolutely in, in, incapable of doing so. We think that now there are in the neighborhood of 100 million Christians in China. Praise God. So this is a, kind of the idea, there is no God. Uh, when that has been a kind of a, um, uh, a philosophy of the state, it has, it has fallen apart. It was a... a not that long ago that there was no alternative to understanding the world and all that we see, um, experience with our senses apart from a supernatural explanation, apart from God or multiple gods. And then everything changed in 1859. Publishing of a book entitled On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. Now Charles Darwin was not the first to suggest that evolution could explain uh, all life apart from a creator, but he was the first to 
popularize it effectively. And that everything could be explained uh, in the universe as a product of undirected natural accidents, so-called natural selection, as well as random mutations. That is now today increasingly the scientific gospel. Uh, Darwin made this quote. He said, there seems to be no more design in the variability of organic beings and in the action of natural selection than in the course which the winds blow. Don't worry, Paul, you don't have that on your screen. There seems to be no more design in the variability of organic beings. In other words, when we look at a, 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 um, we look at a fir tree or, or we look at a, a, a kind of a spider, there doesn't seem to be any, he's saying to me, there doesn't seem to be any more design in the variability of these organic beings and in the act, uh, action of natural selection than in the course which the wind blows. Now, uh, I need a volunteer to help me with what I want to do next. So anybody willing to get merit in heaven? Just kidding. There is no such thing. Come on. uh, Somebody come help me. It's not going to be difficult. I'm not going to make fun of you. Thank you, Jerry. Now, um, it's good to have Jerry. Jerry's kind of a handy man. He's a handy guy to have around. Knows how to work with tools and so forth. Jerry, what I want to do is watch, I I just feel compulsion to watch the movie Avatar right now. The problem is I don't have any way to do that. However, before me, I have all the parts we need to build a DVD player so that we can watch Avatar. So what I'd like you to do is put this together. There are 37 parts here. It only took me about 10 minutes to take them apart. So I don't know how much time you'll need to put them back together, but The nice thing is I kept the circuit boards all together for you, Uh, didn't tear apart any of the plastic pieces. So if you wouldn't mind getting started putting that back together, could you do that for me? Well, I'll make an effort. Oh, no, wait a minute. Um, I do have a few tools over here. I don't know if they would be of help at all. Would this be of help? Oh, yeah. Uh, Do you have a bigger one? We could get things leveled up. Uh, However, that's kind of a misdirection. You're not allowed to use any of the tools on the table. So if you want to get started. Oh, you can't use your hands either. Oh. I'll tell you what you can use. What you can use is, is your um, mouth. If you could blow the parts together. How windy is he, Jan? Now don't blow the parts. Don't, they are closer. See if you can get anything any closer. And, and the nice thing is I, all the parts are perfectly machined. They have all the indentations at just the right spots. And if you get these cogs, I mean, there's a lot of cogs here, but they'll all fit together perfectly. If you just get them at the right place. I'm sure they will. All right, I won't prolong your misery. Obviously, that's not going to work. We have, a, we have everything we need here, all the pieces that we need, but just... Even if Jerry was to stand up here um, all day, my guess is he wouldn't be able to pull this off. In fact, if he were to stand up here for 50 years or 500 years, he couldn't do that. Despite the fact that every piece here is machined perfectly, and despite the, did you ever look at a circuit board? They fascinating how intricate they are. I have no clue how they work, um, how, what, what, what these little plastic things are in the back. I just know they work, and it's amazing. 
Uh, they put this all together and it costs you like 30 bucks. Well, it actually cost me seven bucks at Goodwill. Um, it hardly costs anything. Thanks, brother. You can sit down. The reason I did this is Darwin and his successors are insisting that you can take small, single-celled um, organisms and given enough time, natural selection and random mutations will somehow accomplish their purposes. In other words, there was once upon a time a single-celled amoeba that you and I are ultimately um, came from. And we would not, we look at something like this and say, Keith, you just put Jerry through nonsense. Not so. That's exactly, that this is fundamentally, fundamentally the basic thought of time plus chance equals an ama amazingly designed things and ultimately people. And that's what I want us to focus on today. So we're, gonna, we're talking today about the intricacy of design and what it tells us, potential evidences that it gives us about God that we can share with others. Next week, we're going to talk about the morality that exists in human beings. And the following week, we're gonna talk about the, the universe and where did the universe come from. Now, when, um, let me just say this quickly because we're gonna talk for a number of weeks here about things that science has a lot to say about. And the uh, perspective is in much of the world that science and Christianity or science and religion in general are at odds with one another. Um, this is a fascinating book uh, written 10 years ago called God and Evolution and it's, it has uh, all kinds of people from various religious backgrounds, Jews, uh, Catholics, Protestants, they explore Darwin's challenge to faith. And this is a group of people that are all committed to what we call intelligent design. They're not necessarily saying that there is a particular God, i.e. the Christian God, or the Islamic God, or the Jewish God, that there's not a particular God that can, um, we attribute certain things that we see in the scientific world in our observations, that he's responsible. We simply look at what we're seeing in, in nature and saying that cannot be explained by chance. And so we, we want to say that we're, we're not hostile. I'm not hostile to science. In fact, I think that science and Christianity make really good bedfellows. But we have a group of scientists, in fact, probably fair to say the majority of scientists today, who are invested in a anti, not just a non-supernatural um, uh, perspective when it comes to what's observed in the, under the microscope or observed in the world, but they're anti, they're hostile to a supernatural perspective. Listen to a, a Harvard professor of zoology in the la late last century, late, two, uh, late 1990s. In a, um, a New York Times review of a book that Carl Sagan had just published, scientist Carl Sagan, uh, Professor uh, Richard Lewontin, he was a professor of zoology, he said, it's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world as, as opposed to a supernatural one or an immaterial one, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes 
to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. When he says we are forced by our a priori adherence, what he is saying is as a scientist who is not a supernaturalist, I have automatically rejected the possibility that any of this could be explained by a supernatural explanation. I have an a priori, I have a previous prior commitment to a non-supernatural explanation. And so that no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, more, uh, no matter how counterintuitive, in other words, if you as a person who believes in a supernatural explanation for the world that you see, it might sound counterintuitive to you to have this explanation that we could form a world, a planet, a universe just by blowing on it with the wind, natural selection, random mutations. That might sound counterintuitive to you. Nonetheless, materialism must be absolute for us scientists for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. In other words, I'm going to go to the laboratory and I'm going to go to my telescope and I have a fundamental commitment not to see anything that would suggest intelligent design. Now, if that's not bias, I don't know what is. And I suspect that Professor Luentin wished that that could be scrubbed from the internet. He's 90 years old now, he's still alive, but he gives himself away and others like him that we're not going, science says we will follow where the data leads us. Not true. If you have this kind of commitment, you will follow where the data leads you as long as it doesn't venture into a world that you fundamentally reject. Now, this is not the way it always was when it comes to science. Science was not originally hostile to God. The scientific revolution is considered from roughly about 1550 to 1700. At that time, it was led by men who believed in God and who expected that they would find order as they studied the natural world because they understood from scripture that God was an orderly God. In other words, if there's no design behind everything, then why would you expect to find design in what you looked at in the laboratory and what you observed in, in space through your telescope or just the naturalist, whether it be looking at insects or plants? These first scientists, they didn't study the natural world uh, in hopes of becoming wealthy or in hopes of becoming famous. They did it because they thought it glorified God. In fact, up until the French Revolution, the number one sponsor of scientific research was not science, it was not grants by wealthy people, it was the church. And the scientists were monks and friars and priests who studied the natural world because they believed it to be God's world. So back to our question, is there evidence for God? Yes, majesty in the intricacy of what humans have not made. We look at things that humans have constructed and say, wow, that's really amazing. I'm talking about the things this morning that can't be explained by human ingenuity, by the human mind, by tools and so forth. And focus especially this morning on humanity. Um, majestic, intricacy, 
in the natural world, things that we haven't made, and especially as we look at, uh, at human being. And I don't think that you can simply add nature's accidents to millions of years and have it explain everything. Uh, think about the human achievements, the things that we have made and been able to make, uh, the minds that we have and the things that we have produced. There's some people here this morning um, who have artificial hips, artificial knees. We just had, uh, just in the last several weeks, we have a couple of women that have uh, had knee replacements. They're now doing uh, shoulder replacements. Uh, we ha- are able to transplant not only things like kidneys, but hearts and lungs, and now even faces. Just mind-blowing to me. They can, they can somehow attach all the nerve endings and so forth in, in a face so that you can grow a new face. You transfer one person to another, but then it, it, it's, it's, it works because of the cells of now the new, new host. Uh, we have been able to invent things that uh, my great-grandfather would never have imagined. Uh, we are on the go with commuter cars and buses and, and trains and massive ships. Some of these ships that ply the waters of the world are two city blocks long. Powerful planes that can get us from Philadelphia to uh, Munich, Germany in a matter of eight hours or so. We do things uh, with communication today that, again, even as a, as a young child, I would not have been able to imagine. I remember when we used to talk to people in our church, um, when I was a boy at home, we, we would get on the telephone and it had a long coiled cord attached to it, uh, hanging on the wall. And you just hoped the other people on your party line weren't talking at that moment. It was an amazing thing. Now we have those phones in our pockets and not only can we call people down the street, we can call them on the other side of the world and hear them as clear as the people down the street. Uh, We can not only do that with our little phones, but we can find out the latest score of the Ravens games. And my apologies to you Ravens fans. Wow, that really stank. Uh, We we can do amazing things with communication. We we interview uh, prospective missionaries on the other side of the world, and there's a screen that doesn't always work like it should, but... We can do it. We can see people. Our our family members go to the other side of the world for a a semester of study, and we can talk to them during those months that that they're gone and still see them. Uh, We have comfort, the likes of which, again, a couple hundred years ago, we would have never dreamed of. We have indoor plumbing. Anybody here grow up without indoor plumbing? Yeah. My mother uh, was gotten married before she had indoor plumbing. Still remembers going outside to go to the restroom. Uh, now, we not only have indoor plumbing, we have two, three, four bathrooms in our house. Um, we, we have uh, warm homes and we have cool homes. We have amazing beds and when it's not good enough for anymore. We, we have five years and we get a new bed. You know, it's more comfortable than the last one was. We have lazy boys. Oh, I love recliners. Praise God for lazy boy. <laughs> Luxury hotels. We build structures that can withstand earthquakes. We have a building in the, in the world that's 271 stories high for crying out loud. And it stays upright somehow. We are able to explore the ocean floor miles deep, space, miles out there, microscopic cells, things that we couldn't see. Now we can look at under powerful microscopes and see this amazing world. How's all that possible? 
Well, we just developed. I'm not sure that's adequate. And when we look at our bodies, we certainly didn't develop our bodies. Do you know that your heart is going to beat three billion times before you die if you have an average lifespan? Three billion times and then you die. And during all those years, never stops beating. I mean, our, our cars, how many times in, in your life will your car let you set somewhere? Battery dies, the alternator goes, you run out of gas. I always think about that when I've never been a fan of flying. I'm not nearly as bad as I used to be. And uh, when I was my really uh, traumatic years, I was terrified about going up in a plane. Betty would say to me, she goes, it's safer statistically to be in a plane than a car. I'm like, that way it may be. If you run out of gas, though, in a car, you can pull over on the side of the road. I mean, the car, there's a, a lot of reasons why your car can stop running. When your heart stops running, you're dead. And isn't it amazing that it works for most of us, you know, up to 80 years and it just keeps on ticking, it keeps on ticking, keeps on ticking. Even when there are heart problems, it keeps ticking. You have an amazing pulmonary system that is built into you somehow. I don't know if you are aware, but uh, you will breathe primarily through one nostril for a several hours and then your body will automatically shift the breathing apparatus to the other nostril for several hours. It just feels like you breathe out through both nostrils. Blood vessels, all right, trivia question. If you would extract all of your blood vessels and lay them end to end, if you're an adult, you lay them end to end, how long do you think they might be? Somebody guess, what? Really long, thanks Jan. I appreciate your precision. What's that? 35,000 miles. You're getting there. 100,000 miles. It'll go around the earth four times, the average adult. Uh, about that for a child. Uh, actually, 60,000 miles for a child. I mean, how is that possible? My wife and I were talking about this. She said, that, that just can't be. Just can't be. 100,000 miles of blood vessels in your body. I, I don't know about you. And I, one of the things that I, we're going to address in the last message of this series is the importance of not being snarky with people that don't believe what we believe. That's really important. But when I hear things like, when I hear things like that and I try to make them uh, be integrated with something like we saw this morning. I just have a hard time not being snarky. Like, this just happened? This just went from a one-cell protoplasm to this? I, I'm, I have trouble uh, getting there. You know your belly button has special hairs around the rim so that you can catch lint? I don't know why you'd want to do that. <laughs> But it is true, when I have a black t-shirt on, I, and if I have a white t-shirt on, it's, it's, I'm sure there's a reason for it. I can't for the world figure out what it'd be, 
I'm sure there's a reason for it. You know, it's interesting, some of the things they've never been quite sure about why they're in our body. Over time, they start to say, oh, it might be this, the appendix, for example. It might be this. There's possibilities that there's, there's good reason for these things. But the one that has, that has been something of a, um, a problem for science who, scientists who live with only a naturalistic explanation is the eye. The amazing eye. Fastest muscles in your body. You have six extraocular muscles in each eye <clears throat> that allow you to look rapidly left and right without moving your head. We call that peripheral vision. You have over a million optic nerves in each eye. You have 120 million photoreceptors in each eye. 120 million cones and rods in each eye to enable you to see, to see depth, perception, color, all of that. And the intelligent design scientists, again, these are scientists who are not necessarily committed to a God explanation, but they're, they're insisting that Darwin's explanations, naturalistic explanations are not satisfactory are saying there is a fundamental problem with the eye being evolved. And the problem is what um, is a term was coined back in the late 90s by intelligent design scientists, that the eye testifies to irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity. And what they mean is it is impossible for the eye to gradually become what it is now everything has to be present in order for it to work you can't have this be here and that be here but these features not yet here and have crude sight in order to have any sight you must have everything in place and it all has to work together and I have read the science uh, scientists attempt to explain how it could be otherwise and it's absolutely laughable it's hard for me to imagine that scientists with integrity could postulate the kinds of things that are being suggested as how we could have had a kind of vision early on but not yet had the full um, full bore I want to uh, recommend a a uh, book to you that now it's 25 years old or so that is still making waves. Science books don't typically sell a lot of books, but this book sold 300,000 copies in a relatively, <clears throat> excuse me, relatively short time. It's called Darwin's Black Box. It's written by Dr. Michael Behe. He is a Pennsylvanian. He is a professor of uh, biochemistry at the university, um, Lehigh University up here in Allentown. And Dr. Behe was wrestling with um, things that he saw in the natural world that simply couldn't be explained by a naturalistic uh, evolutionary description. And this book still generates a lot of controversy today. Dr. Behe is one of those intelligent design scientists um, who says it's not possible to have what we have without someone, something, uh, with intelligence designing it. And take a look at this video that's going to give you a, a bit of an insight to what you can see if you're a scientist and you have access to the kinds of microscopes and equipment that's available today. 
For thousands of years, humans have invented ways to propel themselves through water. But long before humans invented their propulsion systems, nature developed its own methods of moving through liquid space, not only in fish and other large aquatic creatures, but in organisms so tiny they cannot be seen by the naked eye. Perhaps the most amazing propulsion system on our entire planet is one that exists in bacteria. It's called the flagellum, a miniature propeller driven by a motor with many distinct mechanical parts, each made of proteins. The flagellum's motor resembles a human-designed rotary engine. It has a universal joint, bushings, a stator, and a rotor. It has a drive shaft and even its own clutch and braking system. In some bacteria, the flagellar motor has been clocked at 100,000 revolutions per minute. The motor is bi-directional and can shift from forward to reverse almost instantaneously. Some scientists suggest it operates at near 100% energy efficiency. All of this is done on a microscopic scale that is hard to imagine. The diameter of the flagella motor is no more than five millionths of a centimeter. The bacterial flagellum is one of many molecular machines that scientists have discovered in the last several decades, including energy-producing turbines, information-copying machines, and even robotic walking motors. The origin of these exquisite examples of nanotechnology is a mystery that has generated heated controversy among biologists over the past two decades. And it's a mystery that has transformed one man into a scientific rebel willing to challenge one of the most cherished ideas of the scientific establishment. It's just a beginning couple of minutes of a, about a 60-minute video that is absolutely fascinating. And if you're interested in looking at it, I will let you know the uh, site. Uh, let's turn to the scripture now and see what God has to say about this natural world. Genesis 1, uh, specifically about the, the humans. Genesis 1, <clears throat> chapter uh, verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. We assume the plural pronoun there refers uh, to God speaking to his son and the Holy Spirit. They will reign, these people will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And so God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. And there is, uh, there are there are plenty of Christians today, I think that's a fair statement, uh, that accept some form of evolutionary, um, uh, some f aspect of evolution that they believe, uh, maybe even theistic evolution where they believe that God created, but he created through the evolutionary process. I find that very difficult to reconcile with scripture. Uh, again, Genesis chapter one, beginning verse 21. <clears throat> So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird 
each producing offspring of the same kind. I, I, I don't know how you get past that to say, uh, ultimately through gen genetic uh, um, modification, random uh, mutations and natural selection that somehow we move from uh, whether it's a fish, uh, uh, from a fish to a frog or something like that, be when God is insisting they reproduce after their own kind, verse 24. God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that's what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals and livestock and small animals, each able to produce offspring, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. And we had, you know, we're asking, uh, or we're trying to help people who might be asking the question, um, is there evidence for God? We're trying to show them that there is evidence, and they're saying, but God is invisible. And this is where we can segue the conversation back to, but God made himself visible. The invisible God became visible. Colossians chapter 1, Christ is, uh, verse 15, Christ is the visible image of of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Just a reminder that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not created. He uh, always existed with the Father. And for him, uh, verse 16, for through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see, the thrones we can't see, such as thrones, uh, things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. And just the, the repetition here, there is an, a, 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 an attempt to kind of pile upon uh, argument upon argument upon argument that Jesus Christ is God. I was talking with somebody this week who says, a friend of theirs insists that God never, or Jesus never said he was God. Some of the things that are said in scripture that, that speak about this are said in such a way that would have been far more clear to the original hearers that Jesus was claiming to be God, that the early uh, Christians were claiming that Jesus believed himself to be God, and that's certainly the case in this passage. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him, God reconciled everything to himself, made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And of course, John says in uh, chapter one, verse 18, that this was part of what Jesus did in his coming. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God, the whole context is about Jesus, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. And so we can point people to some evidence in the created world, but ultimately we want to take them to ponder Jesus Christ himself. Our hope is in the good news, not how creation was made. But the good news comes through a creator who offers to deliver his creation. And unfortunately, routinely, science rules out the possibility that something could be uh, explained supernaturally. And as we've said, the bias is kind of breathtaking. Um, our hope is in the good news. And when we think about the, the world that we look at, we should remind ourselves that all data is interpreted. 
Scientists will tell you as they talk about hypotheses and theories, they will tell you that their theories are, are not the way we typically think about theory. You and I would say a theory is something that is unproven. It's, it's something that we believe, but we haven't verified yet. And many scientists will argue, no, our theories have a lot of evidence behind them. And so we can say about something like Darwinism that it is essentially proven. And I'm like, if it's proven, you don't need an adverb in front of it like essentially. If you say essentially proven, it's still a theory. All data is interpreted. And that's why a Christian science scientist and an atheistic scientist can look at the same data and draw different conclusions. And it's why the so-called answers that we're talking about these weeks are no more slam dunks for you talking to an unbeliever than uh, that our answers are not proof. Uh, we, we, we can't go to an unbeliever and say, I have got proof for you that God exists. Why? Because you're interpreting data and they're gonna interpret data. So we need to go to them with the kind of humility that recognizes they're ultimately going to have to interpret the data that you give them. But we're saying these are reasonable explanations, reasonable alternatives to explaining things strictly rather than strictly from a natural holistic uh, causes. They can at least, they, we, these are alternative answers that can at least poke some holes in their confidence and all their convictions. And, and by the way, I would encourage you to read some books like these. Um, and you, maybe you're like me, and I, science is not my bailiwick. I, have, I put in the longest week this week in about a year and a half. I work way more hours this week than I normally do because I was trying to read and absorb things that are not natural for me to grasp. And, and what's interesting is this week I got more interest than I ever have been before in these kinds of things. And so you don't need to absorb books, but there's many, many uh, websites out there that you can look at some of these things and uh, find out some helps for you in your conversations, not only with unbelievers, but your, your kids and your brothers and sisters. As we said last week, our primary goal these weeks is providing answers that open gates to faith for people that aren't Christian, as well as securing gates behind faith, ours, our children's, and our brothers and sisters. And let me close with this quote from Alistair McGrath, a Christian apologetic, uh, apologist. He says, apologetics is not a set of techniques for winning people to Christ. It's not a set of argumentative templates designed to win debates. It is a willingness to work with God. In other words, we're God's instruments in the lives of other people. A willingness to work with God in helping people discover and turn to his glory. And I think that's a fitting way to close. Father, use us, uh, use us to help unbelievers um, find alternative explanations to all that there is. Use us to help our children get a better and better understanding of the world around us and help them see some of the, uh, even some of the thinking flaws about those who have approached the data with blinders that rule out any kind of supernatural explanation. Help us with our brothers and sisters who go through seasons of doubt and help us bolster our own faith, close that gate more securely behind our own faith. We pray uh, in Jesus' name for his sake and for our good. Amen.